Hello, and welcome to this podcast installment of Disciples. Disciples is the leading faith formation program for young adults in the Archdiocese of St. Louis. St. Louis Young Adults, in collaboration with the Paul VI Institute, is pleased to bring you these short, intellectually stimulating courses. Disciples courses, taught by an expert, offer a deeper look into topics that will help you understand and practice your faith more fully. We hope you enjoy this edition of the Disciples Podcast. Thank you for helping us build a home for Catholic young adults in St. Louis. Why don't we um, begin with a little prayer? Let us remember that we're in God's holy presence. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Um, I'm very open to, as we go along, um, to changes that you might want to make. I have a number of uh, PowerPoint presentations that I put together uh, for this, but um, if you'd rather deal with uh, documents or something like that, you know, just go ahead and let me know, and we can uh, vary that up over the next several weeks. So, uh, But I do want to start out with a um, uh, PowerPoint presentation on basically an overview of early church history, and then after that, getting into each of the uh, various uh, uh, church fathers and uh, what they offer to us. In, in a real sense, in those first couple generations, um, everything is set in motion. Uh, what we have today, as far as the Catholic Church is concerned, it's all there right from the very beginning, and it's just a manifestation of that uh, after that. So. Uh, this is really um, um, important groundwork, real foundational work. It's probably the reason why the seminary doesn't let me teach this material. I, uh, they keep me teaching medieval and modern and contemporary and American church history, but they keep me away from the patristic, so uh, it is what it is. So it's a real uh, joy to be able to get back to do some of this with you. So, um, First of all, I want to say something about um, one of the things we can... We, we have to realize is that within five weeks of getting together that there's no way that I'm going to be able to fill you up. And that's not my objective anyway. My objective is really to make you hungry so that you'll be able to um, want to do more on your own. And I have a tool that you could work with if you want to use it. It's entirely up to you. <clears throat> and that is the, uh, web, my academic website which we put together over a number of years in conjunction with Covenant Network, the Catholic radio station here in St. Louis, and then the, um, uh, and then the, the seminary also. So if you want to use uh, that, you can just uh, go to the website itself. It's very easy to find. It's simply michaeljohnwitt.com. So just michaeljohnwitt.com. When I first applied to it, I tried to get Michael Witt gov and they wouldn't give it to me so <laughs> so, so I settled for com instead um, this does not look like the uh, the present form um, the archivist over at the uh, Regali Center has done a lot of work on it but it's basically the same thing but uh, but with more icons and the kind the icon that you're going to be interested in is is the one on the upper left hand corner that's the one that has the uh, radio programs for early church history. And they're around 65 hour long, uh, 65 programs each an hour long. And you can take a look at, at those and uh, see which ones you'd want to 
uh, take a look at. <clears throat> when you go to the website and then you click onto that icon, uh, then the first thing, so you, uh, michaeljohnwith.com, uh, the martyrs at Sebaste, and then you're going to go to a page with me walking this incredibly <laughs> handsome dog in historic St. Genevieve. And then when you see that, over on the left side of that <clears throat> is, is a whole list of programs. And these are programs that are both archived there as well as on the Covenant Network a website. And I think uh, Boeing Catholics has that same thing also there. So it's uh, housed in a couple of different spots. And then um, if you want to listen to the program, it's a, for one thing, over on that left side, if you click that, um, there's going to be a whole page of electronic dispensae. Uh, so it, what we're going to be talking about, and because a lot of the, the names here are rather strange, it, it's good to have those uh, um, listed out so you can see those. A lot of them are hyperlinked also, so if you wanted to find out more about the martyrs at Sebaste, you could just click on that and it'll go over to a, a couple websites that will give you more information about it. So you can really waste an incredible amount of time with the early church history um, by using that. Um, it used to be that you could go ahead and minimize the screen. You'd hit on the, uh, the audio button and then it begins playing. And then you could minimize the screen and then you could go back and look at the dispensary again. Unfortunately, somehow in, in the renovations, they've gone ahead and changed that so that um, if you, if you click to minimize a screen, you don't get anything. Um, what I found that you can do, however, is to, before you listen to the program, you can go ahead and copy out the, um, uh, the screen itself and, and follow along that way. So, any questions on how to use the, um, the, the website? And besides, um, the uh, early church history, there's also a section on medieval church history, another section on modern church history. All in all, there are 169 hours of programming in just that. And then I'm also doing the same thing with local St. Louis Catholic history, too. So um, when we start looking at early church history, I like starting at around 70 AD and looking at the siege of, of Jerusalem. <clears throat> because it tells us an awful lot about what's going on. So I subtitled this, Here Comes the Sun, S-O-N. I'll explain why. <clears throat> you know that the Jews went in revolt around 66 AD. And for a couple years, the, the Romans putzed around and they really didn't get serious about putting down the rebellion. And they had a couple disasters in the process, and then finally they got serious about it, and they put together a, uh, uh, an army that was one of the largest armies in, in, in the Middle East. It literally came in, and it, it was in the process of surrounding the entire city of Jerusalem to lay its siege to the city. And as it was doing that, the Christians in Jerusalem all got out. And we'll talk a little bit about what happened, how they got out. But they, they all escaped before the siege was set. And then after that, there was no more getting out. And uh, you had, especially over here on the Mount of Olives, see over on the right side there, uh, you had 
the, uh, the uh, one of the legions there, I believe it was the 10th legion, uh, set itself up and it had catapults. Every legion had a couple catapults. So they had these catapults. And what they did was <clears throat> they would shoot off a stone, a 70 pound stone, and they would shoot it high. It would come high and it would hit the top of, of, the, uh, of the towers. It was not meant to break down the walls. If you've seen the walls of Jerusalem, especially you know the, the Wailing Wall, uh, nothing like that's going to be able to take that wall down. But that wasn't the idea behind it. What they were doing was they were firing these, these stones up. They were hitting the top of these towers. And then they were shattering. And so they would rain down as shrapnel. So the idea was these were actually anti-personnel stones. They were not trying to tear down the, the walls. They were trying to injure people. And so the Jewish leadership sent a watchman up to the top of the towers. And they would watch across the Kidron Valley. And whenever they saw a, a, a catapult fire off, they were to shout down at people, here comes the stone. Well, here comes the stone. But they punned in the process. And what they did instead was, instead of saying, here comes the Ha-Eben, they shouted out, here comes Ha-Ben. Here comes the sun. S-O-N. They were mocking. What were they mocking? The second coming. Right? Here comes the sun, the second coming. They were making fun of that. Because they were mocking the Christians because the Christians had gotten out of, um, of Jerusalem before the siege. <clears throat> and the siege turned out to be incredibly um, deadly. The number of people who were killed in that siege, uh, the city itself destroyed, the temple itself burned down, and then uh, literally the, the rest of the city was captured and then they were sent all over the Roman Empire into this great diaspora. And the reason why they did that, <clears throat> the Romans did that, was they wanted to go ahead and send 20 or 30 people into northern England so that the people in northern England look around and go, we better not cross these Romans. Look what happened to these guys. You get the idea? So they sent them all over the empire for that purpose. <clears throat> so where did the Christians go? The best bet is that they went to Pella. Um, Pella is a city in Jordan. You can see uh, it's north of Amman. <clears throat> And literally what you have then is a quote right from Matthew 24. And this is what the uh, Christians were paying attention to as they were seeing these Roman armies coming and beginning to lay siege to the city itself. And they're reflecting back on Matthew 24. It says this, when you see the desolating abomination spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. A person on the housetop must not go down to get things out of his house. A person in the field must not return to get his cloak. So get out. And so that's exactly what they did. Biblical historians believe that they, they assembled down in the southern part of the city uh, around the Essene Gate. So down at the bottom part of the city, it's quite possible or quite probable that Christians had been living in that area anyway. Um, that's where we've identified the Seneca, where the Last Supper took place. 
So it would be only natural that they would be in that neighborhood. They left through the Essene Gate, then they crossed over the Kidron Valley, and then you can see there's a road that goes up to the southern side of the Mount of Olive. They would have followed that road before the 10th Legion occupied that area. They would then have come down to Jericho, crossed over the Jordan River, and then made their way back up, up to Pella. Pella's perfect. It was a city that was unoccupied. The people of Pella had left, uh, perhaps because of the displacement of the war. I don't know. But the city was unoccupied. It was next to a river. There was fresh water. And so it was a perfect place to hang out until the siege was over. And then the Christians could come back afterwards. And of course, they were not particularly welcomed by the Jews that remained. In fact, so much so that in 85 AD, the rabbis gathered together and they formed together what they call the curse of the Nazareans. And it goes like this. May the Nazareans, that means of course the followers of Jesus, may the Nazareans and the heretics be suddenly destroyed and removed from the book of life. It's around this time also that rabbis, those who still remained in Palestine and had not been taken off to the diaspora, <clears throat> gathered together in what they call the Council of Jamnia, the little city of Jamnia, and there they decided they, they, they decided that they were going to be very strict about the way things were going to develop. For one thing, the temple was gone, so there was no more temple worship. The only thing remaining now were synagogues. And the synagogues go back to the time of, of the Babylonian captivity, so they're familiar with synagogues. And so they were going to uh, ground their worship in the synagogues themselves, <clears throat> and they were going to purify their Bible. So rather than use the Septuagint, which is the Bible, remember, that was translated into Greek. This is the Bible that Jesus used, okay, the Septuagint. They rejected the Septuagint. They went back to the Hebrew Bible, and they decided that only books that had originally been written in Hebrew would be accepted as, as canonical. All other books would be rejected. So as a result of that, the first and second Maccabees were kicked out. The Book of Tobit was kicked out. A couple others um, that were also rejected. And, uh, and, and so that becomes their canon. Now the Christians, on the other hand, <coughs> continued using the Septuagint. And they did, all the, the church continued to use the Septuagint all the way down to the Reformation. And it's at the time of the Reformation that Martin Luther went back to the Council of Jamnia and adopted the Jewish Bible at that point. And so that's why Protestants don't have as many books as Catholics do. <clears throat> the next thing is, the, is then to look at the apostolic and the sub-apostolic church. In other words, uh, going on from the first generation, those who were called by Jesus himself to those who were not called by Jesus but rather were um, commissioned by those who were called by Jesus. So it's the next generation. Number of things flow. <clears throat> For one thing, there was um, an inquiry that was 
uh, brought about during the reign of the Emperor Diocletian, who ruled from 81 to 96 AD. He had found out that, uh, that now remember that the, um, the Jews had been suppressed, Jerusalem had been destroyed, that was in 70 AD. 10, 11 years later, he begins hearing rumors that back over in Palestine, there's some kind of a Messiah coming around, there's some kind of a movement, and he's the king of the world, he's the king of the universe, and he's, he's, he's a challenge to, uh, uh, to uh, Domitian himself. <clears throat> so we know this for a fact, that the emperor sent an inquiry into Palestine to try to find any relatives of Jesus to see whether or not they were forming some kind of a rebellion against the Roman Empire. And when they found some relatives, um, these are the sons of St. Jude, uh, they, um, uh, they interrogated them and um, basically they said that, that the kingdom would come about at the end of the aeon to judge the living and the dead. And when the report got back up to um, Domitian, he said, well, these guys are kooks and we don't have to worry about them after all. However, he took very seriously the fact there were, there were already Christians in Rome and some of them were in the palace itself. And this included uh, one of his uh, cousins who was a co-consul. Uh, co That's a very high position in the Roman government. And he was executed. And the court records show that he was executed for atheism. Now back then, atheism didn't mean you didn't believe in God. It, it meant that you didn't believe in the Roman gods, plural. And so here's someone who definitely believed in one God, <clears throat> and that would have been um, our God. So this is in 95 AD, uh, shortly after that. The Emperor Trajan <clears throat> went to Antioch, uh, where he uh, had a trial for the Bishop of Antioch, the second Bishop of Antioch, which was Ignatius of Antioch and he was found to be guilty of atheism also. In other words, he only believed in one God. And so he was then assigned to be taken to Rome where he would be killed by wild animals. While this is going on, there is a consul, what we would call a consul of Jerusalem in uh, around 48 AD. And this has to do with a, an issue uh, that the church was facing and the apostles, and the next generation of leaders gathered together in Jerusalem to discuss this issue and to figure out what to do about it. We have the record of that in the Acts of the Apostles itself. And unfortunately, too many Catholics don't pay much attention to that. So I'd like to go ahead and take a look at that uh, tonight. Yeah, by the way, there's a film that came out about three years ago called The Inquiry, The Final Inquiry. And if you haven't seen it, it, I'd really recommend it to you. It's a well-done film. But it's based on the idea, although it's, it's placed in a different time period, uh, much earlier than what the Domitians actually uh, had. Uh, but it's, uh, it has to do with a Roman inquisitor who was sent to um, Palestine in order to get to the bottom of this whole Christian thing. And it, like I say, it's an interesting film. It's, uh, and it's kind of based, in a sense, on the actual historical event that took place with that inquiry under Domitian. 
So, Jerusalem, Acts of the Apostles, 15th chapter, the 22nd to the 34th verse. And here we find a number of very important things that are happening um, in, um, in, in the church exerting her authority over the general body of the church and the direction, the leadership of the church coming together and exerting its authority. So it says this, it said, <clears throat> then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose delegates from among themselves to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. So the church itself, the elders and the apostles are representing the church at large and they're making a decision. They're making a decision to send um, these, uh, this, this delegation to uh, Antioch. The reason why they're going to Antioch is because there are a number of converts in Jerusalem that, had, that, that were Pharisees. A number of Pharisees came over and were converted. However, they, didn't ex they wanted to write their own rules. And one of the rules they wanted to write was circumcision. And so up in Antioch, you had a number of uh, converts. And, and there, there are a lot of Gentiles were attending synagogue services because they had come to believe that there's only one God. And they knew that the, that the Jewish God was the, was the God. And so they're with the, the Jews in the synagogue. They're worshiping the one God. They're reading the Old Testament. They're reading the scriptures. They're known as God-fearers. And so these people are there, and they're among the first to be converted. So when Paul goes to, um, to a synagogue to preach, chances are he's going to convert the God-fearers first rather than the, the Jews themselves. And some of the Jews will come along. But the God-fearers are very prone to being, um, uh, to, uh, to, to converting. And so they're converting in large numbers. Antioch is a large city. It's one of the largest cities in the, in the Roman Empire. They're converting by, by fits and drones. And then, all of a sudden, this group of Christian Pharisees, guys that were Pharisees but had converted to Christianity, but did not believe that you could, um, they believed that you had to go ahead and, and maintain the same um, Mosaic laws. They get up to Antioch and they tell these newly uh, baptized Christians, oh, by the way, you have to be circumcised. And these guys are going, whoa, wait a minute. <laughs> this is a bait and switch. And that hurts, you know. When you're a little baby, it doesn't hurt. But as a, you know, an adult, it does. And, and so they're very upset about this. And this is what the big issue is over, um, over circumcision. Um, and, and so that's why the church is then sending these representatives up with um, Paul and Barnabas. Um, they're going to be sending uh, Barsabbas and, and uh, Silas. And then it says this, and gave them the letter to take with them. And it says this, the apostles and elders, your brothers, send greetings to the brothers of Gentile birth in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. We hear that some people coming from here, but not, act, not act, but acting without any authority from ourselves. You get that part? Okay. So rather than everybody just running around setting up their own churches and you know and and, and getting a, a a correspondence course in, in ministry and that kind of thing, they're talking about real absolute authority. 
So some are being sent by them, others are not. And so they're saying this here, they're saying, acting without any authority from ourselves, have disturbed you with their demands and have unsettled your minds. And so we have decided unanimously to elect delegates and to send them to you with our well-beloved Barnabas and Paul, who have committed their lives to the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accordingly, we are sending you Judas and Silas, who will confirm by word of mouth what we have written. Here's the important part here. It has been decided by the Holy Spirit and by ourselves not to impose on you any burden beyond these essentials. So it's recognized right from the very beginning, from the very first consul, that when consuls, especially ecumenical consuls, are called, those are called under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And the, and the deliberation that comes out of that consul is done by the Holy Spirit, working through the consul fathers. It has been decided by the Holy Spirit and by ourselves not to impose on you any burden beyond these essentials. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from illicit marriages. Avoid these, and you will do what is right. Farewell. There you have it right there. Apostolic authority, Episcopal authority. With this, you have the spreading of Christianity. Um, basically, this is the, the Roman Empire at the, uh, the time of the first and second century, and, uh, and, and with that, the spreading of, of Christianity itself. Again, look at 1 Corinthians, and Paul says this. Furthermore, God has set up in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracle workers, healers, assistants, administrators, and those who speak in tongues. I always found it very interesting that they put administrators right next to people who speak in tongues. <laughs> now we see that in, in Corinthians. We see this hierarchy already in Corinthians, but we also see it in other documents, like for instance in the Didache, the 11th chapter, the third verse. Now, are you familiar with the Didache? What's the Didache? Sort of one? Yeah, good, that's a good way. Yeah, good, that's a good way of putting it. We had known about the Didache for centuries and centuries, and we had snippets of it, little bits of it, but we didn't have the whole thing until the late 19th century. And there was a Greek Orthodox priest who, uh, on his day off, used to like to go into old libraries. And he went into this one library in Istanbul and he goes down into the basement and he's rooting through some old ancient documents and he comes across a ream of papers that look different from the other reams of papers around him. He pulled it out. It was the entire Didache from beginning to end. And it's in, uh, it has since been published and it's available to you uh, on the internet as well as a hard copy. Yeah. And there, in the Didache itself, it talks about Apostle prophets, prophets, bishops, and deacons worthy of the Lord. 
And so then you come into that next generation. This is the, the sub-apostolic generation. So for instance, you have Titus, Timothy. <clears throat> These are people that uh, St. Paul writes letters to. They never knew Jesus. St. Paul knew Jesus only through the apparition. But unlike the other apostles, they never knew Jesus. And so this is that next generation. Uh, same thing is also true about some of the, um, the authors of, of some of our Gospels. Matthew was an apostle. Um, Mark was not. He was a secretary for St. Peter and, tra and translator for St. Peter. He never knew Jesus. He no only knew Jesus through St. Peter. And then after St. Peter was, was crucified, uh, he then left and went down to uh, Alexandria, the second largest city, and he spent the rest of his life there. That's St. Mark. St. Luke never knew Jesus. He was a physician. He was a doctor. And he attached himself to St. Paul. And he traveled around with St. Paul, again, basically as his secretary. And then later he'll write both uh, his gospel as well as the Acts of the Apostles. Uh, St. John, obviously, was, was one of the apostles. Added to this, you also have the first set of popes. So Peter is the first pope. And before he was uh, moved to Rome, where, where was he located? Anyone know? Yeah. Antioch, very good, yeah. And so he leaves Antioch, he moves to Rome, and then that's when Ignatius took over as uh, Bishop of Antioch. Peter is uh, in Rome, he uh, is, um, is executed. Following immediately after him is Linus. Uh, he's then executed, followed after him is Cletus. Followed after him is Clement. And I've underlined Clement because Clement's a very interesting individual we'll talk a little bit more about. Uh, there's a family in Rome, very, very important, powerful family called the Clementine. And he was in that household. We don't know exactly the relationship, whether he was a relative or there's a good chance he was a slave. But you have to keep in mind that slaves in, in the Roman Empire, they were like tutors. They were like... Um, um, private teachers, many of them. Some, some of them did menial tasks, but others uh, were, were much beyond that. Uh, but here you have Clement. We'll talk about Clement a little bit later on also with his letter uh, to the, uh, the Corinthians. Um, John, this is a different John. Uh, Polycarp, and it's important. We'll show that in a little, bit, a little bit later on. Also his relationship in the sub-apostolic period. So we get into the persecutions of, uh, of Nero. Uh, basically what you have is a significant number of, um, of um, Christians and Jews living in Rome. Uh, they don't get along. Uh, they're always arguing with each other. And, um, and, and finally at one point the Emperor Claudius said, that's it. Okay, if you're a Christian or a Jew, get out of town. I don't want to hear it anymore. And they were all expelled. And then shortly after that, they all came back again. Uh, the next emperor is that of Nero. Uh, Nero could care less about religion. Uh, he had a lot of other things going on. Uh, however, during his reign, he was out of town when uh, Rome caught fire. And um, it was uh, down in the area around the Circus Maximus. And uh, it, it's 
there are interesting circumstances about why it happened and how it happened. But the fact of the matter is that it seems to have broken out at a stable around the Circus Maximus, owned by a friend of Nero. And, um, and, and the big question is whether this fire was an accident or whether it was, the Rome was torched. And there were a lot of Romans who thought that it was torched, burned on purpose, and they blamed Nero for it because Nero had already gone to the Senate and said, I want to remake this city. I, mean, I want to turn it into a beautiful city with, with big uh, uh, avenues and, 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 all, and big buildings and all that. And they basically said, we don't have money for it. We can't do it. The demolition alone would take a fortune. Who needs demolition when you burn it down? So Rome burns down. Thousands of lives are lost. And then immediately, Nero comes back to Rome and says, oh, what a shame. Now, he was not playing a fiddle at the time. He was actually in another city. But he comes back to Rome. And the first thing he does is he says, the Jews did it. And the Jews immediately jumped on this and go, well, I don't think we did it. I mean, after all, we're heavy into the insurance industry. And why would we go ahead and ruin ourselves with, with a fire? No, probably those people that are talking about the world coming to an end and uh, the world being consumed by fire, they're probably the ones. Why don't we blame them instead? And, and Nero ended up blaming them instead and introduced then this, uh, this uh, great uh, persecution around 64 AD. Roman historians talk about this persecution and talk about the way in which these Christians were killed. Many of them literally were taken and, and dipped into pitch and then put onto poles, tied onto poles, and then set afire in order to illuminate the imperial gardens at night. Uh, others were slaughtered in other ways. We know that St. Peter was taken out to Vatican Hill and uh, which is also very close to the Circus Maximus and uh, was, um, was um, crucified. And we know that St. Paul was taken outside of the walls and was beheaded. Now the reason why he was taken outside of the walls and the reason why he was beheaded was because he was a Roman citizen. And if you're going to have a capital punishment as a Roman, uh, you have the privilege of having your head chopped off as opposed to some of the other crueler ways that uh, the Romans tended to do. This is the interesting thing about this, is that we know that uh, St. Peter's body was taken and it was buried in a shallow grave. There was a cemetery, a, a pulper's field, very close by. And we know that, that he was buried in a shallow, shallow grave. We know that the Christians came and put a slab over his grave, so they know exactly where he was buried. And then later on, they came back again when they had some money and the persecutions abated for a while. They came back in and they took the bones and they built what they what referred to as a trophy, which we would say would be a, a, a monument today. And it stands about six feet tall and, and the bones are buried up underneath. And uh, one of the early church travelers, guy that constantly traveled around, by the, name of Caius, and, and Caius went to Rome and he described in great detail where Peter was buried. Then his, his affidavit is called the Trophy of Caius. Now here's the interesting thing. Over the centuries, we thought 
that the that the bones of St. Peter were buried underneath St. Peter's Basilica, but we didn't know. Over centuries, and take a look. I mean, how how high uh, these um, uh, you know rubble constantly uh, on top of each other, and and so the present St. Peter's when it was built, it was built over on top of the old St. Peter's. And, uh, and, and against, it was just presumed that St. Peter was buried somewhere underneath that, that building. And, uh, and it wasn't until the 1950s that Pope Pius XII actually put money aside to bring archaeologists in to begin digging to try to find the bones of St. Peter, literally to try to find the trophy of Caius. And it was during the time of Pope Paul VI that they actually found it. And since then, there's been a, a passageway that, that's been brought down underneath here. You can see this yourself. You see the, um, uh, the, red, the red wall there? And underneath that, the surviving part of Peter's grave and, and the trophy itself. And if you go into St. Peter's itself, and you see where the high altar is, you can actually go down around, <clears throat> and you have to have permission, and, you, and you, it, it's, it's called the um, Scavi Tour, and you have to do it before you leave the United States. You make arrangements, and you can go there, and they'll let you go down, all the way down into that, uh, to the grave of St. Peter. And uh, if you saw the St. Louis Review last week, there was a picture of Archbishop uh, Carlson down in front of that grave, praying in front of that grave. So it's, it's our, that's the most in, in, phenomenal thing about this, is that directly below the high altar, that's St. Peter's grave. And when you look up, you've got the, 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 the Bernini columns with that Baltichino. And, and what does it say on that Baltichino? Tu es Petrus, you are Peter. I mean, it's pretty phenomenal. Yeah. I'm impressed, I don't know. <laughs> Here's some other pieces of evidence, too. You know that in 79 AD, there was a, an explosion of a, uh, of a volcano, Mount Vesuvius. We all know about Pompeii on the one side. Uh, it's gotten all the attention because Pompeii was sort of the Fort Lauderdale of, um, uh, of the ancient world. <laughs> On the other side was this little town called Herculaneum. And uh, Herculaneum was basically a, um, a service village where the servants lived and would go over to take care of the um, of the, the people who are um, having fun in, in um, um, Pompeii. But the interesting thing is that in Herculaneum itself, which has also been excavated, not just uh, Pompeii, but also Herculaneum, and of course the archaeologists are not nearly as interested in Herculaneum, there's not all that neat stuff there. But what they found was that symbol It's a Greek term, ichthyos. It means what? Fish. Yeah, it's a symbol of the fish. 
And, and so you see that. I mean, you know, especially uh, in, um, in Baptist neighborhoods, you, you find people driving around with uh, bumper stickers that have a little fish on the back of them, right? And it, it stands for Jesus Christ. It's it, it, ichthyos. And, um, and, but they found it. So there were Christians living in Herculaneum at the time of the explosion of Mount Vesuvius. And they were doing graffiti. So just something to think about there. I know. It's around that same time that uh, Clement, uh, Clement becomes Pope. And he finds out that in Corinth, uh, there's a problem going on. And the issue in Corinth is that there are some very wealthy Christians who have been lending their houses for churches uh, because they don't have churches. So what they did instead was they would open their house for the Christians to come and celebrate their Eucharist. Now, a Roman house was built in a square fashion, usually two stories, <clears throat> only one way in and out, usually no um, windows on the first floor, uh, so it's like a fortress. But the important thing is that inside the center of the, of the house is an atrium. It, it, it's, there, it's a yard. And that's where the mass would be celebrated. So people would come, Christians would come from all over, and they would come into their house, these people's houses, and they would stand around the first floor and the second floor, and the priest then would be celebrating the mass in the atrium itself. That went on for a while until some of those wealthy people, as sometimes happens, decide that they want to have a deciding role in the church and church matters. And when the presbyters and the, and the bishops basically said, no, you can't run the church, we're running the church, they said, okay, fine, find yourself a church because you can't come here anymore. And so they locked them out of their, uh, their houses. And they, there was a, a lot of argument and discussion that went on. And ultimately what happens is uh, St. Clement writes this letter, it's a great big long letter, to the Corinthians, and he basically shames them into coming back into the church again and supporting the, uh, supporting the church. Now, here's an interesting point. What right does he have as Bishop of Rome, what right does he have to tell the people in Corinth how to act? He must think he has some authority. We'll talk a little bit about that a little bit later on, about, about the, the Petrine authority. Now when you get into the next generation, the third and fourth generations, so this is beyond the sub-apostolic, uh, now you get into a whole series of church fathers, some of whom we're going to talk about, uh, one of those being uh, Justin Martyr, if we have time tonight we'll uh, talk a little about him, uh, Irenaeus of Lyon, uh, died around 202, uh, St. Clement of Alexandria, uh, Tertullian, who is not a saint, I'll explain a little uh, later on why, and so you have these uh, individuals who are writing letters, uh, um, apologia, um, apologetics, uh, explanations of what the Christians believe. And, and this is the grounding of what we have then for Catholic doctrine. There's another set of literature that's also circulating at the time, and that's called the martyrologies, because Christians are being put to death. And there are three levels of martyrologies. The most reliable is uh, are from court records. 
basically what happens is the Romans were very, very meticulous in their court records. They kept meticulous court records. And, um, and what they did then was they would record these trials of the Christians, word for word. And then when the persecution let up, Christians would go down to the city hall and they'd say, I'd like to see the court records for such and such a trial. And they would open the books up. And then these Christians would go ahead and they'd write them down, word for word. And so those are very reliable. We know exactly what was said at those trials. And they're quite extraordinary. Um, we have a chance, if you'd like, to go ahead. I'll read you a couple trials, especially there's one in Egypt that's just really phenomenal. Um, you have to understand that in the Roman court, the prosecutor was also the judge. Kind <laughs> of came a little edge there. And, and in this, this one case is a very prominent uh, Roman in Egypt um, who was found out to be a Christian. And he gets into this argument with this judge prosecutor. And the two of them go back and forth. And it's quite extraordinary. In the end, he ends up dying. But it's quite extraordinary. And sure enough, Christians are able to go in when the, when the uh, persecutions are eased up. They're able to go in and get copies of this and copy it all out. And we have those, uh, some of those extant. Second is eyewitness accounts. They're called passiones. And what this is, is that a, that a Christian would literally witness to another Christian being killed, martyred. Uh, he himself or herself would not be martyred. And, um, and instead, they would then write down what they had seen. And that's pretty reliable. Not as good as a court uh, document, but pretty reliable. And then finally, there's another la uh, layer, and that's legends and stories, and also sermons. You know, sermons are not meant to be historical documents. They're meant to exhort and get people all worked up about something. So sometimes preachers have a way of exaggerating. So we can't rely on the, the stories of the legends um, as, as, and, and the sermons as much as the other two. But th that motorology is floating around, and we've got plenty of examples of that. Tertullian says this. We are but of yesterday, and we have filled all your world. Cities, islands, fortresses, towns, marketplaces, the camp itself. In other words, we're even in the military. You don't know it, but we're there. And we've got secret handshakes, you know, and we, we know who we are. Tribes, companies, the palace, the senate. That has to get them all worked up. And they were. We had Christians in the palace. The Senate, the Forum. We have left you nothing but your temples only. That's quite a brag. You know. So some of those people, and, and there's some women as well as men, that are in the palace and in the Senate, and they have ways of getting in touch. I'll tell you later on about one woman in particular, Marcia. And she had a very close relationship with the emperor and got him to do things for the Christians that normally wouldn't happen. And, and the early church recognized these people. And, and they had a name for them. And it was uh, Cardos. Uh, Cardos is a, is a, is a, um, a um, uh, 
for a door, what do you call that? Um, a hinge, yeah, thanks. Yeah, they're, they're hinges. A cardos is a hinge. And so these, these were known as hinge men because they could open doors. What do you think we get in the word in English? Cardos. Cardinals. Cardinals. They weren't always dressed in red and running around. Here's another letter. Um, we're not really sure who wrote it, uh, but he writes to uh, Diognetus, who was a teacher of the Emperor Marcus Aurelius. And he says the following. He said, for the Christians are distinguished from other men neither by country nor language nor by customs which they observe. They are neither inhabit, they, for they neither inhabit cities of their own nor employ a peculiar form of speech, nor lead a life which is marked out by any singularity. The course of conduct which they follow has not been devised by any speculation or deliberation of inquisitive men, nor do they, like some, proclaim themselves to the advocates of any mere human doctrines. But inhabiting Greek as well as barbarian cities, according as the lot of each of them has determined, and following the customs of the natives in respect to clothing and food and the rest of their ordinary conduct, they display to us their wonderful and confessedly striking method of life. So you look at a Christian, you're not going to know he's Christian. He doesn't dress any differently. He doesn't speak a different language. He doesn't live in a, in a, a, a ghetto by himself. There's no way you would know he's a Christian. But then he goes on. They dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with others, and yet endure all things as if foreigners. Every foreign land is to them as their native country, and every land of their birth is as the land of strangers. They marry, as do all others. They beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. What's he talking about there? He's talking about the fact that a lot of Romans, rather than have children, they would literally they would abort their children before birth. Or if they thought that was too dangerous, especially the Romans, would have the birth of the child. And then that evening, the ch that very evening of birth, the child would be taken down to the Tiber River and laid on the banks of the Tiber River. And wolves would come along and eat them that night. That's what he's talking about here. The fact of the matter is that Christians in Rome, women would gather together Christian women would gather together in evening after sunset, after the babies were abandoned, and they would go through those, um, uh, those um, um, uh, uh, riverbeds and they would pick up these children and literally bring them back and adopt them. Yeah. So this is very old. Uh, this practice is very old. And here you can see again, he's talking about, about this. They do not destroy their offspring. They have a common table, but not a common bed. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. 
They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. And here he's, he's quoting from Corinthians as well as Philippians. They obey the prescribed laws and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life, 2 Corinthians. They are poor, yet they make rich. They make many rich. They are uh, in lack of all things and yet abound in all. They are dishonored and yet in their very dishonor are glorified. They are evil spoken of and yet are justified. They are reviled and blessed. They are insulted and repaid the insult with honor. They do good, yet are punished as evildoers. When one punished, they rejoice as if quickened into life. They are assailed by the Jews as foreigners and are persecuted by the Greeks. Yet those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. He's writing this to an advisor to the emperor. So, next section, trials and, and, uh, and, and triumph. There are persecutions that come and go all throughout the uh, first couple centuries. Um, a number of emperors had developed this policy of don't ask, don't tell. Okay, so, you have Christians living around in, the, in your communities, don't ask if they're Christians, and don't expect them, don't expect them to tell. Um, other times, they went out and, and looked for Christians. Um, especially when you get down to some of the later emperors, you have the Emperor Decius, is, has got, got one of the biggest um, um, persecutions. It, ha it only lasts for two years. But it's widespread all throughout the empire. He announces, first of all, that Christians are the enemies of Rome. And they've got to be rooted out. And then the way he does that is every town and every village has an altar set up. And everybody in that village has to go and take a couple pieces of incense and throw it into the fire before this god. And if they do that, they'll receive a certificate that'll tell everyone that they're loyal citizens of Rome. If they don't do it, they'll be assumed to be atheists, that is to say Christians, and they'll be persecuted. The Pope himself was martyred. Uh, Cyprian of Carthage went into hiding. Others went into hiding. Others thought, ah, it's just a couple pieces of incense, who cares? and they went ahead and threw the incense in. They got their certificate, and everything was fine. And two years later, the persecution was over. And that's when they came back to the church. And there was a big argument, especially in North Africa, because a lot of people lost relatives uh, to this persecution. And these guys are coming back and a lot of people in North Africa said, no, 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 no. You left. You can't come back again. We don't want you. And so this is a big controversy. It's called the Lapsi controversy, the lapsed. People are lapsed. And whether or not they could be forgiven and brought back into the church. 
And ultimately, and again, this comes strictly mainly from Rome, um, the church said yes. If there is such a thing as forgiveness. Even apostasy can be forgiven. And come on back in, don't do it again. And so they were uh, brought back into the church. Not all of them. There were some churches in North Africa that said, no, we're not going to listen to you. We're not going to do what the universal church does. These people are bad, and we're not going to let them back in. And they went into schism. They were so strict. Yeah. Were, uh, were the Jews exempted from this? Or what yes. Yeah, there's a, there's a long-standing understanding between the Jewish community and the Romans that they were allowed to have their own one God and they would not necessarily worship other gods. Um, it, this, this, it took a long time to develop that, uh, that relationship, but, but it was. The only time it was violated, it had nothing to do with theology. It had to do with politics. And that was the revolt, uh, the Jewish revolt, 66 to 70 AD. Uh, but it had nothing to do with theology. Yeah. Yeah. The church that schism, um, was it eventually reabsorbed? Is it still No, eventually it will be reabsorbed. Uh, in many cases, it's going to be St. Augustine who's going to be doing the uh, fence mending. But it'll go on that long. You know, we're talking about 100, 150 years. But eventually, uh, yeah, that'll be brought back in. Yeah. Another persecution, even worse, was under Diocletian. And as you can see here, this went on for a good number of years, 21 years. The first thing he did was he announced that Christianity was illegal. And by this time, Christians had built churches I mean, right underneath, you know, Diocletian was living in Constantinople, and, and right down the street from his palace is a, is a church. And so he goes ahead and he starts tearing these churches down, and then he sends a word out all throughout the Roman Empire that every scripture, every Bible, every lectionary must be burned. And he did such a good job at it that when he died, and the persecution came to an end. Nowhere in the Roman Empire was there a single Bible left. And instead what happened was churchmen got back together again and they started, they, they started writing to each other. Um, what do you have? Well, I got the book of Psalms. Okay, send me the copy of the book of Psalms. And, and what, about, what about you? Well, I've got the first half of uh, the book of Daniel. Oh, okay, send that bucket in. And then, uh, I've, yeah, I've got this part of John's Gospel. And eventually they, pulled, they had enough to pull the entire Bible back together again. And they, they then began um, writing out whole Bibles once again. But it was that thorough that there was not a single, we don't know of any single Bible that had survived the um, intact, the... Um, uh, um, the, the persecution of Diocletian. He continues this persecution by arresting bishops and then uh, priests and then deacons. They would be hauled off and uh, brought to prison. They would be tortured and then ultimately were, were martyred. Two of his own personal servants he found out were Christians. And he asked them to please apostatize, and they wouldn't do it. And he said, I I'm not going to be real nice to you. 
Now, I want you to apostatize. And they said, no, we're not going to do it. And said, okay, fine. We'll put you in prison. And it's nothing but bread and water. And they got in prison, nothing but bread and water. And he sent, he sent um, delegates and said, um, you're going to apostatize now? No, no. And then it got to the point in which there were horrendous tortures. And eventually both of them died under torture. But he wanted so badly for them to come back over to the fold and be pagans that he actually killed them. Um, that's when he turned on the laity. And he started persecuting the laity too. And that's when he found out that within his own government and within the army, there were Christians. And, and so then that's when he started finding them out and dismissing them or uh, doing worse than that too and martyring them. Eventually he died. Uh, we think he had stomach cancer. He died a very, very uh, painful death. And then things change. You had the Battle of Mulvian Bridge uh, in, in, at the time of, um, of the uh, battle itself in the time of Constantine. It was known as the Battle of, of Red Rocks. It's a very interesting uh, battle if you're into uh, ancient military history. Constantine himself is not a Christian. Um, we know that he had Christians in his family. His mother, uh, I believe his mother was um, Anastasia, which is Greek for resurrection. And uh, her husband, Constantius, was not a Christian, but he did believe in one God. Um, and he, he worshiped the sun as, as, a, as a God. Uh, the sole injectus, the, um, the unconquered son. Um, his son then, uh, Constantine, eventually takes over the Roman Empire. It's a long involved uh, struggle. Uh, but in the process, he also then issues the Edict of Milan in which he tolerates all religions. He basically said, worship your God any way you want, but do me one favor, pray for your emperor. And I'm, I'm covering all my bases now because whoever the real God is, you know, they'll be prayed to. So uh, that's what he's going to do. Uh, Constantine was eventually um, baptized on his deathbed. And he did that on purpose. Um, he thought that if he were baptized earlier, he knew that he was going to have to do some really rough things. And it would lead to sin. And so he decided to store up his baptism until the very end. And... Um, and get out of jail, jail free, or get out of hell free. You know. He sets up um, the Pope, uh, Pope Sylvester I, and gives him uh, a palace, uh, which, had, which had belonged to the Lateran family. This is a family that was on the wrong side of the revolution, and so their family uh, lost their palace, and it was then given to the Pope, and today uh, the Lateran is still the, um, the um, cathedral of, um, of the Bishop of Rome. Following after that is the Age of Greats. St. Jerome, St. Ambrose, St. Monica, St. Augustine, St. Gregory I. Notice that their dates are, are 
overlapping for the most part. Any uh, questions, comments, quotes, criticisms, or cries of anguish? <laughs> Pardon me? The Didache? Yeah. Yeah. Um, look it up on the internet, and, and, uh, and it's there. You can read it in the Greek, and you can read it in English. Um, it's, a, it's a great little book, and, and it is really phenomenal because the moral theology that we have today is right there in the Didache. The Didache was actually written before the Gospels were put together. So it's a very early work. We're talking about the, the 40s and 50s, literally 15 years, 10 years, 15 years after the, uh, the resurrection. Yeah. Okay, I just want to introduce, just for a few moments, uh, this man here, Justin the Martyr. Um, he's called the Martyr because he was martyred. Um, <laughs> little story behind all of that. First of all, he was born in uh, Flavia, uh, Neapolis, around 100 AD. We believe that he was converted to Christianity around 130, so he's about 30 years old. When he converted to Christianity, he uh, was an intellectual. He taught both in Asia Minor and in Rome. Um, we know that he, he dressed in the manner of a, an intellectual. Um, scholars back then wore a, a particular kind of a, of a um, um, garb, and, uh, and he did that himself. Um, he authored two apologetics, as well as the Dialogue to Trifo. He was martyred in, uh, in 165 AD, and the Anglican Bishop, Archbishop Carrington of Quebec, said the following. Now, this is a man who wrote a two-volume history of the early church. And if you didn't know that he was Anglican, you would have thought that he was Roman Catholic. And he said the following. He said, if we ask where the strong witness in the church is to be found after the death of Polycarp, we are bound to say that it passes to Rome. It passes to the church itself and to its succession of bishops rather than to any individual. The individual who stands highest after the death of Polycarp would probably be Justin, who is now accepted as a Roman teacher and becomes a Roman martyr. He teaches not only Christianity, he's also teaching Greek philosophy and particularly uh, uh, Platonism. I'm just gonna leave you with uh, this observation he writes two letters, uh, apologies, uh, apologia. One of them to the emperor and the other to the senate. And the one to the emperor is to the emperor Antoninus Pius. In Roman history, there are considered to be five good re uh, emperors, and he's one of those. Um, and, he, and, and so um, Justin writes this. And so we are called atheists. It gets back to that whole question of, of being called atheists. We're called atheists. Well, we do indeed proclaim ourselves atheists in respect to those whom you call gods, but not in regard to the most true God, the father of righteousness and temperance and the other virtues, 
who is without admixture of evil. And then we'll take a look particularly at, um, at baptism, how he talks about how baptism takes place and how the Eucharist takes place because there's a lot of stuff floating around at this time because we're talking about eating and drinking the body and blood of Christ. And Romans are very sensitive to that. In fact, there's only two religions who are recognized as, as standoff. We're not gonna to touch them. And one is the Jews and, and the other are the Druids. And the Druids are so weird that the Romans don't have anything to do with them. And there there is blood sacrifice involved with those guys. There are a couple other really weird religions too. That, that, um, I mean, there's one where the baptism in, involves standing underneath a bull and then the bull's uh, neck is, um, is slit and the, and the blood goes down and baptizes you that way. That's kind of weird. But, um, yeah, so there's some weird things that are going on. And, um, and Justin writes to the emperor and then later on to the senate to say what you've been hearing about us is all wrong. This is what actually takes place. So when we come back next week, what I want to do is literally read his description of the mass. And I want you to see the parallel of what we're doing exactly today with what was being done in the second century AD. Okay? I'll see you all then.